Welcome to New World of Work, a podcast exploring the new frontier of the modern workforce. I'm Rhys Black, Head of Remote here at Oyster, a global people operations platform making it easier than ever to build a brilliant team on an international scale. On New World of Work, we'll hear from some of the world's best and brightest people and culture experts on cutting edge topics that people operations professionals need to hear today, all through a global lens. Join us as we navigate this new world of work together and learn more about each other along the way. As one of the most well-known events management systems in the world, Eventbrite has been dominating the industry for over a decade. But when the pandemic hit, companies around the world were forced to make some fundamental changes to their business operations. And Eventbrite was no exception. One such change was making the transition to a hybrid working model for its hundreds of employees. Today, on New World of Work, we'll be hearing from Eventbrite's Chief Human Resources Officer, David Hanrahan. With over 20 years of experience in the people operations field, including a three-year stint at Twitter, David has a wealth of knowledge to share with us about change management, building company culture, and what it takes to make a hybrid working model successful. To kick things off, David shared more about his career and his current role at Eventbrite. I started my career in HR in a very different industry. Uh, I started in HR in the oil and gas industry, working in a really big refinery. And so that's a very different uh, environment than than what I'm used to now, particularly different in that I've been working from home for quite some time now. But, you know, it's very different people challenges versus these tech companies I've been in. But so I started my career in HR in really big oil and gas manufacturing. And I worked briefly um, in a movie studio environment. But I really had most of my career spent um, in HR leadership roles in tech companies. So um, EA being a really big one, but then, you know, Twitter, Zendesk, and then Eventbrite, just to name a few where I'm currently at. It's been a company I've always been a fan of. Julia Hart is the CEO and co-founder. She's really built a company culture that's that's been very notable and prominent uh, over the years uh, in terms of just being a, a you know, employer of choice. She was one of the very first tech companies to come out with a generous and equal parental leave policy. So our parental leave policy is 18 weeks for all parents. This is something I cared about um, you know, years ago and seeing Eventbrite come out with that before a lot of other companies did was, was pretty noteworthy. I'm a, a new parent um, and I was attracted to that idea of parental inclusion. And so also the live events uh, is, is you know, something I can wrap my head around. I've tended to join companies where the product is something I'm either I use and I'm passionate about, or I can like really wrap my hands around it and see, you know, kind of the you know, positive impact it's going to have. So just about 700 employees today, uh, we're located around the globe, but we have big clusters in San Francisco, in Nashville. Uh, I'm based in Austin. We've now got about 15 employees here, but when I first got here, there's just a couple We've also got employees in South America, Europe, and Australia. So in South America, we have uh, employees in uh, Mendoza, Argentina. Then Europe, we have clusters in Madrid, Cork, um, London, and then uh, Melbourne, Australia, another another big cluster. In the past, um, like a lot of startups, we got a bit enamored with shiny objects. So we would have new ideas and and new sort of um, innovations and and sort of teams spun up to chase um, new opportunities. And that resulted in a lot of activity, but not enough focused impact. So this is something that we've we've tried to get better at, particularly in the pandemic. So we emerged stronger from the pandemic by becoming more focused. 
we actually just launched new values in the company, uh, replacing some values that had been, you know, kind of dated uh, pre-pandemic values. And one of those values is about driving impact. So, you know, the idea of there's a lot of opportunities, but you have to hone your focus. Strategy is not only what you're choosing to do, but what you're not doing. And so being more explicit about that, I think, helps create more clarity. But again, at, at the core, the culture is, is one that is compassionate in our bones and building these muscles around those bones of, of high performance and learning. The pandemic forced most companies to pivot in more ways than one. And Eventbrite was certainly no exception. Despite the changes the company has undergone over the last year and a half, one quality has remained the same throughout, compassion. As an events company, Eventbrite was particularly hard hit by the pandemic. David walked us through the experience of the pandemic from his perspective at the company and how they pivoted to accommodate a new world of work without sacrificing on the company's core values. It was brutal, right? I think, you know, live events, I joined, I joined before the pandemic and I thought of, uh, you know, the industry from a live events perspective of going to live events. That's, that was kind of what the association was for the live events industry. Suddenly that that's on hibernation, right? Restrictions all around the globe, you know, every municipality you can think of suddenly puts a limits on gathering. And so that, um, that realization early on, it was like March and April, 2020, we just realized that the live events industry was going to be, you know, in some sort of hibernation for the foreseeable future. I've never been part of something like that where a cloud that dark had, you know, suddenly emerged over a company, never been part of that, something like that, you know, my career pretty quickly, we reset the company. So we reset the business model, we reset the structure, very painful, but smart moves early on in the pandemic. So just one example on how we reset the business model, we moved from being a very high touch account management focused company uh, to a more self-serve business model. Basically, you know, if we can build technology that is so intuitive to use, any creator, big or small, can use it, any consumer can navigate through it. If we can do that, we'll emerge stronger. And so that became, you know, a challenge to remake the um, the DNA of the company, become, you know, more of a tech focused company, build really innovative technology features, you know, in the product. Tech as a population in the company, so engineers and product managers, that was only thirty percent of the company pre pandemic. This year, we're going to end more than half of the company is in some sort of tech role. So, you know, that's you know, at the core, it was about rebuilding the company from the studs. Morale during all of that in the summer of 2020 was like at an absolute low point. And you could see that in our engagement scores. But then slowly but surely, we started to, you know, like hit beats. We started to hit beats on like, hey, we're going to launch a three-year strategy. Employees would say, I've heard that before. You know, we've changed our strategy so much. That we'll, you know, proof, proof is in the pudding. We'll wait and see. We launched our three-year strategy at the end of the summer of 2020, then entered the first year of that and continued talking about it. We hired really great new leaders like our CTO, who's based here in Austin with me. And then slowly but surely, things started changing. The business started doing well, but then we actually started doing what we said we were going to do. You know, we focused and we actually showed employees, hey, here's what we're doing as part of this three-year strategy and we're actually executing on it. And so the proof is really interesting. Our engagement score today, the 20-point turnaround versus that dark summer of 2020 and it's even higher now, our engagement, it's even higher than right before the pandemic. So there is a big turnaround going on there, which I think is really exciting. I think um, the history is really interesting, right? Because it, Eventbrite was a company that was very much an in-office culture. 
before the pandemic, only 3% of our workforce worked remotely. And so it was, you know, the first move was really going to full remote. That was painful in itself. It was like, I remember, you know, us naively wondering back in that sort of late spring 2020, okay, when is, when is this going to be, when is this going to be over? We're going to come back in the office. Right. And I think then that summer we realized, okay, this, this is, we're in, we're in a sort of, you know, remote setting now for a while, but let's start thinking about what is this going to be when we come out of it? So it was towards the late summer 2020, when we were going through a lot of conversations internally about specifically, were employees going to be allowed to have a choice after the pandemic, after restrictions lift and we can suddenly start to go back to the offices? Is that going to be um, employees' choice? Or are we going to say, hey, everyone back? You know, Or like some companies do, they say, well, you have to apply to continue working remotely or only certain roles can work remotely. And so... You know, I'll credit Julia, our CEO, in these conversations when we were debating, hey, you're, you know, the expectation is everyone's back or some some hybrid version of that, meaning like some people get to stay, you know, working from home, some people don't. I credit Julia for saying, you know, let's let's make this bold choice now. This is late summer 2020. We're going to let everyone work from home. And there's no manager can, you know, sort of say no or yes to that. Uh, it's a personal choice to work from home, everyone in the company. And so um, that was late summer 2020 when that was a sort of like first big pin in our future hybrid model was that it was choice. It was going to be choice was going to reign. And, you know, there's a lot of a lot of anxiety about that, about that decision, because that was going to be, you know, basically, you know, putting a pin in for the most part, you know, a big part of our hybrid model in the future. Some have said the hybrid working model is the way of the future and Eventbrite had the foresight to put the model into place early on. But what exactly is the hybrid working model? It looks slightly different for every company, but David explained how Eventbrite adopted this approach over time and whether they plan to keep physical office space moving forward. Well, the idea of, of a hybrid model where we're working in a different way, much more flexible, people are choosing to come in or not, um, more asynchronous, that type of hybrid model, as opposed to a traditional model of everyone's in the office, it didn't really, you know, take form until we actually started to experiment with some office reopening. So our Melbourne office was actually the first office to reopen. And that was, you know, um, probably a couple of quarters ago. Australia at that time had been doing a really good job of having you know, a low, low transmission uh, of COVID in the, in the community. So they were able to, to reopen their office because they had such low, low um, local transmission. And so our Melbourne office was the first experiment of, of how is this going to go? And then what are we going to learn from it? I think a big part of you know, the, our hybrid model is just really learning, learning from other companies and learning internally what's working, what's not working. So what we found uh, early on in Melbourne, which I think has remained true in our other offices that have reopened, like Nashville and L.A., what we found is that with personal choice, you're, you're going to have just a very small fraction of your local community, right? The Melbourne Eventbrite community. You're going to have a fraction of them that are coming in regularly. For us, at least, that's what we found was about 20, 20 to 30 percent. And then you've got another you know, third of the, of the local community that is kind of sort of coming and going. Hard to predict, you know, who's going to be there. It's very sort of, you know, kind of um, just, you know, kind of random luck, you know, who's choosing to come in, who's not. 
And so, you know, early on that kind of felt, it felt kind of like a bummer, I think, for some of the employees who were there and expected, you know, a vibrant, you know, a vibe like we were turning to what it used to be because we were in an office culture. And so what you had to start reorienting towards is that, you know, the office is not where work happens. Office is just a tool. You know, where work is happening is, you know, in your laptops and on calls with your colleagues. And so, um, and things like adding food or doing things in the office wasn't, wasn't changing at, it wasn't changing like the vibe in the office. It wasn't changing, um, you know, like, a, a, a more people coming in or anything like that, nor did we really in trying to incent people to come in. So this, um, this started to give rise to us internally for, um, a collaboration doc from our Growbrite team, which is our, our L and D team around hybrid work. And what are we seeing in our current experiment in Melbourne, what are other companies seeing? And we started having conversations with leaders. Uh, we had hybrid leadership workshop, hybrid working leadership workshops internally. And then this for us eventually culminated into a, a hybrid work model. Um, my VP of people, Tanya, created an approach called making hybrid work work. And at the core of it was starting to rethink um, work and particularly hybrid work as a multi-dimensional view. Uh, and so instead of it all coming down to where you're working. There's also the why, there's the how, there's the when. And then under each of these, you know, practices, old practices we used to have and new practices that we're going to iterate on. And amidst all of this is a constant flow of communication, dialogue with the teams like Melbourne, dialogue with leaders who are starting to, you know, be at, on the ground in these new office reopenings in Nashville and Los Angeles. And seeing in the survey data, what are practices that are working? What are practices that are not working? For the most part, our offices have not fully reopened around the globe. Some of them, some of them opened, some of them went back on lockdown. Some of them are opened, but the restrictions in the local community are so tough that people are just choosing not to come in. But we're actually prepping to open a couple another, a couple more offices now. We have another wave of offices that are going to reopen. And so what has happened to the offices? I think in general, like you want to map your, your, your footprint to what the, what the employee activity is going to be. So when we ask them, we ask employees, you know, what's your, what is your working preference going to be? Are you going to, we, we call it um, hubbling, flexling, and remoteling. So are you planning to be in the office, you know, four to five days per week? That would be a hubbling. That would be someone who then says, I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to need a, a, an assigned seat because I'm going to be in there predictably you know, every day, except when I'm on a vacation. And then the flexling is actually a bigger proportion of the workforce, right? So hubbling is a small proportion, maybe 20%. Flexling is, um, you know, maybe, maybe upwards of 50%. So majority of any community where we have an office is saying, ah, we'll see. I'll come in a couple of days here and there. And, but I'm, you know, it's, it's going to be hard for you to know when I'm going to be in there. That, that is a big challenge to creating a, a footprint that works. But it gives you some idea as to what do we need to account for? What could what could be, you know, on, on a given day or in a given week, what could be the, the number of employees that we have there? That then says, well, you maybe need more satellite seats than assigned seats. Um, you, you're going to need more conference rooms um, and more, more, more huddle rooms, rather, um, given that we're actually now going to be used to um, all dialing in. And then you have a, a poor proportion of your community that's saying, like, I, I don't really plan to ever come in. Um, and that's maybe... 20 to 30%. So, so that data has um, a, a really helped inform for us adjustments to the size. But in general, that looks like, you know, shrinking your office footprint. But what could happen, and I'm not, I'm not for certain on this yet, 
But what could happen as we're seeing employees move, and we've had a lot more people move, so move from, I'll give you an example, move from California to Texas, like I did, moving to different communities now where, hey, because I'm allowed to work remotely, I can I can go work and live in Montana. I've always dreamed of doing that. So I'm going to go there. I'm going to go to Bozeman. And we have you know one person that's in Bozeman and then maybe two people. And then maybe soon we get 15 people. So what could happen then is instead of these big glass towers that you accumulate, you know, over the years in like a couple of big locations, meaning I have big clusters in just a few locations, you now have like smaller clusters, but in, in more locations, you're, you're more spread out with these clusters. As companies like Eventbrite transition into new ways of working, where does the role of the people operations team fit into the jigsaw puzzle? According to David, it's up to the people team to provide leadership with the insights into what's working and what's not, and then facilitate an ongoing dialogue to ensure continuous improvement. Well, I think of it as less of author, right? So less of the people team is authoring, here's how we're going to work, and, and more of facilitator and you know the, the holder of the mirror, right? I'm not going to paint your picture, but I'm going to hold the mirror up, and I'm going to show in the data what is working for people, what is not working, and facilitate leaders and employees getting together to start iterating on new practices. As, as one example, you know, we found very quickly early on, you know, if we have, you know, a people in the office and they're in a conference room and they're dialing into the conference room and there's one dial into the conference room and there's five people in there, but the majority of the team is on a Zoom call the five people that are in that room are having inside conversations and there's crosstalk and there's chatter. And it really quickly shows you how exclusive that is. It really quickly shows you how, you know, resuming that sort of activity of the idea of like where one person's going to dial into the conference room TV, it, it actually doesn't work anymore. So we have to have everyone's dialing in. Even if you're all five are in the conference room, now we're all dialing in to have a more equal experience. So that, like the role of HR, was facilitate that dialogue. Um, sort of showing the data what early on is is not working. Facilitate the dialogue around a practice that we then we put into the collaboration doc, not as an author but as a collaborator. And I think that sort of spirit of collaboration is one of the things that we tried to do to make it a collaborative experience, as opposed to you know it's kind of coming from a sort of top down view of how we're going to work. Well, I think some of the toughest decisions are around physical space and, and offices and what are we going to um, what are we going to return to? So I do think there's uh, tough decisions for us. A lot of them had to have had to do with the office because we were an in-office culture. The idea of you know shrinking office footprints is like it's kind of this kind of this emotional like you know are we admitting defeat, right? Like we're we're gonna shrink our office footprint and and not go back to, you know, the big, you know, sort of, um, you know, kind of like glass tower, we're going to have a cool office. It's going to have to be a different, you know, shape and size and feel. But I think early on that, that felt as though like, you know, we're scaling back certain office, you know, investments that felt to some people that like, oh, this is, this is, it's not going to be fun. It's not going to like, this is, you know, if you're choosing to be in the office, it's not going to be good. Um, but that, that, I don't think that's, that's actually panned out to be true, but that felt like an emotional decision early on. So I think uh, some of the office stuff, you know, not another one is like that we're sort of sorting through right now is like food. 
you know, and, uh, you know, a lot of tech companies are traditionally have had like, you know, catered meals in the office. And that's part of, you know, for right or for wrong, that is part of the sort of like the value proposition. I'm going to come in because there's like great food here. Otherwise, like why bother? And I think, you know, the idea of like using, using that to, you know, to kind of like entice people to come in is kind of the wrong way of looking at it. And so some, some of those types of decisions early on felt like they were going to be, you know, hard or they felt like they were going to be things that were going to like, you know, maybe like, you know, sink the in-office culture. It hasn't actually been true, though, in a, in a personal choice model. So in any case, those, those felt like tough decisions. But in hindsight, you know, as, as we've gotten further along, they haven't been that tough. Transitioning to a hybrid working model has its benefits and challenges, particularly when it comes to team bonding. But surely an events-based company must have a leg up when it comes to tackling internal events and retreats, right? David explained how the company's approach to internal events has changed since the pandemic and how they've taken a virtual approach to team bonding. Well, pre-pandemic, pre, uh, we had uh, a production sort of approach to all our all hands. So we would have you know, dry runs and like actually produce it like, like an experience, like, like a ticketed experience. I'm purchasing a ticket to go to this all hands. It better be good, you know, with, with, you know, music and DJ and sort of like, you know, everything you can, you can imagine with a live experience. Um, maybe there's drinks if it's like late in the day, what have you. And, and that's, you know, we're not really going back to that. So can you still have a production? Can you have a, you know, a high quality production of something that's going to be hundred percent virtual, even for people in the office, right? Like when we have all hands in our San Francisco office reopens, it's still going to be virtual. And so, but you can still produce that. What, what we saw in the pandemic was that online events obviously skyrocketed and a lot of them were incredibly well done. So the creative, the creativity from our creators really informed for us how to actually put on really good virtual online events. And so, you know, that involves things like making sure that technology is right, that we have interactivity, that there's uh, there's actually interaction that you can have um, in the all hands. And we've been doing so many of these. Uh, we do uh, hearts to hearts, which is our CEO just spends 30 minutes each week with all employees answering questions, bringing in special guests, doing Q&As. We've been doing so many of them. I think that it's really helped us um, for the day when it comes, when we're actually truly in hybrid, all our offices are open and we're doing all hands again. Uh, a lot of that learning has come from, uh, from the creators themselves. There's a twist to that though. Let me, let me add. The, the twist is that in the pandemic, uh, the Microsoft released a report, I think last spring that showed, you know, we're all, we're all in about two and a half times more meetings now on average than before the pandemic. And so this gave, this gave rise to Zoom fatigue and top you know articles about that. Um, and so we're in we're in more meetings and they're, they're tending to run longer. And people are doing more of their digital communication after hours at night and on the weekends, which gives rise to burnout. And so um, you know one thing that is kind of counterintuitive is well I don't know if it's counterintuitive, but like how do we actually now have fun? We should have a Zoom happy hour. And we realize people actually don't want to do that. They don't want to have one more Zoom meeting when they've already been on Zoom meetings all day. So I think about having high quality virtual meetings is actually about having less of them. So try and condense your time for like, hey, we're going to do these all hands, hearts to hearts, like team meetings. Try and condense it 
and then give more flow time. So actually uninterrupted time for people to do heads down work, go outside, maybe where the Wi-Fi isn't as good, take a walk. You know, we've actually just um, looked at our uh, meeting activity data and we did a survey and we, we shipped some best practices on meetings. But at the core, it's about having less of them and then tracking, tracking our meeting activity. I think this is going to be a new thing. In fact, Google just released something that everyone on the Google Enterprise can look at their meeting activity week over week. We're going to start to see more of those things, startups like um, Clockwise, which allows you to kind of like reclaim your time and sort of schedule your time better more, you know, with using AI. And so that's, that's the trick is, you know, have high quality virtual meetings, but don't have more of them. Actually have less of them, less of them that are more impactful. The flexibility for employees just to get together is um, we, we leave that to employees if they want to have, you know, a happy hour at a location. You know, we're, we're saying if you're interacting with each other, you got to be vaccinated. We have a whole process in place, you know, to show proof of vaccination. And so coming into an office or interacting with each other, you got to be vaccinated. You know? And but where, where it's a little bit more tops down is, is from a data point of view, like, hey, suddenly we have 15 people in this location. That feels like the right time now to have uh, a, at least a WeWork. And so that's more facilities driven. Our facilities team sees those data sets and says, hey, this is this is time. Is there a leader in that? location I can work with to, to do some tours of office space. Like I'm here in Austin and like, I'll, I'll do some tours and we'll figure out like where all those 15 people live. And like, would this actually be useful? Would they come in? So then we ask them, Hey, if we got an office, would you come in? Sometimes you might have a scenario like where we got 15 people and not a single one of them want to want to work in a look in an office. Okay. Well, don't, don't purchase any, you know, even temporary office space. If not a single one of them wants to come in, but increasingly, we're seeing people want to do that, particularly as restrictions lift, as safety start to starts to become more uh, prevalent in communities. People that are next to each other do want to find ways to, to interact, even if they're not even in the same teams. And I think that's a little bit stemming from the social isolation everyone's been grappling with. And uh, that's just latent. And we, we believe in it as a, as a company, bringing the world back together with live experiences Working with each other can be a live experience, working and interacting with each other. Um, and that's that's one way that we think about uh, powering that is that live experience is kind of in our DNA. And I think data, data came up in this um, you know, meeting activity discussion. Uh, some of the startups I've seen actually want to sort of have a dashboard for leaders around where people are spending their time. And that that can feel like, wow, I'm being I'm being monitored, you know. And how do you do that, but, but empower the data in a way where it actually like helps employees reclaim their time and their life, right? So that the data is in your hands, not just some, you know, kind of wizard behind the curtain data that I have that, you know, I'm monitoring you, but only I can see it. So the, the, the way that the Google enterprise does that, it, you can actually see it yourself. This, this shows you the data. And I think if I get to see the data, whether it's compensation data or whether it's my meeting activity data, if I get to see it, I'm going to trust it a little bit more. And this brings me back to like, how, how is, how is my union environment at an oil industry any relevant to like, you know, today, same concept, you know, employees in the union, like, Hey, if you're, if you're telling me this is going to be, you know, sort of financially burdensome to accept these new uh, agreements, show me that data. So the idea of showing the data, if you're going to be monitoring something, whether it's engagement data or, you know, and we show, we let all our employees see the engagement data from our culture amp results. Everyone has access to the engagement data. So I, I think that's probably going to be core to how we navigate the future, because I do think that 
meeting activity is really interesting data. I think we're going to need to start seeing more of that and more real time, um, more real time pulse and sentiment, you know, instead of just doing things like once or twice a year. And if employees have value in it, then I will do your survey, you know, or I will allow myself to be opted into this thing if it's valuable for me. And so that I think that value has to be mutual to, to navigate those, you know, kind of, you know, pretty sensitive questions on privacy and big brother and all that. I think you want to start in a high trust environment. You want to start with guidelines, right? And treat people like adults as opposed to you have firm and fast rules. And so I, I think to counteract the idea of, you know, suddenly you know, clicks or, you know, like um, sort of exclusive groups that are meeting that sort of wield power and they're actually in the office and like, Hey, now I need to do that because the, all these leaders are in this office. I think that one, one mode out of that for companies that embrace hybrid work is probably, you know, leaning on asynchronous work as opposed to we got to get in a meeting together. That's, that's why I've been so nervous about meetings is because I think the more that we per, like we have meetings pervade how we work now, the, the more that you are going to run afoul of those suddenly those exclusive groups, you know, sort of like um, causing, you know, causing damage internally. I think if we can get used to, wow, we actually only meet for a couple hours each day and the, and the company like cultivates those meeting zones and then everything else is up to up to us. Majority of my week, if the majority of my week is asynchronous work, then the minority of my week, these meetings won't have as, as much of an impact than if my, my, the majority of my week is I'm in Zoom calls. And so asynchronous work also helps maybe if you're starting to hire in new, t- new time zones you weren't even in before. So, hey, suddenly we're opening up an office in, you know, uh, you know, in Asia or we're opening up an office in Russia or something like that. That's a new time zone. You create more strain for those, for those groups who have to suddenly, hey, we have to figure out how we get everyone on the same call. And all hands are, are going to be, you know, hard to, to sort of like have not be exclusive because they always happen on San Francisco Pacific time. And these other groups, they never get to dial into those. So the less, the less that you have meetings um, and availability for meetings, um, you know, like really reign over how you operate your company, the less that you do that, uh, hopefully the less that you um, have some cultural challenges. So anyways, that's just one thought. Looking ahead, David shared his perspective on the future of the hybrid workplace and where he believes the workforce is headed. He also shared some more about what's next for Eventbrite and what they're focusing on as a company right now. That's a big question. And my, my gut reaction is, you know, this is, this is a future for a certain type of company. Uh, you know, a re- retail manufacturing thing, things like I'm, I'm, like we actually need to iterate on even hype in like um, manufacturing tech. So there's software tech, but then there's hardware iterating together as a team on some product that is going to you know be in people's hands. I just don't see it as a sort of unilateral. This is the best thing for all companies out there. I think it's going to be a, a tool for a certain type of company, but even for a certain type of company, it will come with risks. So I don't think it's the future of work in so much as some of the conversations around this are are more of the future of work, Um, trust, empowerment, employee choice versus top down decision making. Some of the things that are being talked about in the periphery of this are probably more 
of the future of work, a changing view of how um, the next generation entering the workforce want to work and how they want their companies to treat them. And, you know, choice as a general concept, more choice in how I get to do my work versus, you know, the nine to five, 40, 40 hours per week, which was a, a legacy of like the Ford Motor Plant, like the 1920 or something like that. I think, you know, the 40-hour the work week will probably change. We probably won't be spending the majority of our, our you know, adult lives, you know, um, doing a nine-to-five Monday through Friday type of thing. I think that's going to change. Again, in part because of some of these conversations that have been happening in the pandemic around how do you, how is the best way for me to work? How is the best way for cultures to work? Things like trust, empowerment, choice, you know, giving rise to hybrid as one model for a certain type of company. Um, but I, I don't think Shell Oil Refinery is going to adopt hybrid working anytime soon would be my prediction. You know, and for tech companies that do adopt it, there's always this looming specter of companies in the past in tech that adopted it and then then went, then did away with it. Yahoo famously had a pretty flexible working from home approach, you know, whatever it was a decade ago. And then, then they said, this is this is causing problems for the culture. We're doing away with that. And they were not the only one. There was other, um, you know, high tech knowledge, knowledge worker, um, you know, companies that had a similar approach and a similar end result. They did away with their, you know, we'll call it hybrid working or flexible working because of, of problems that they perceived it to have. So I think even companies that do adopt it, there's still a risk of how, like, how you make this work. And you can't just sort of set it and forget it. You can't just say, okay, this is now, now we're going to just, uh, you know, um, do this and it'll be fine. You're going to have to spend time on it, iterating it, like, like going to the gym, like you're going to have to be exercising muscles to, to make it work for you. So it will not be without its, its own risks. Well, we just launched new values. And I, I think there's a sort of a, a V2 of our culture that we're working on. Now that we've got high engagement, um, I mentioned that at the top of the hour, how do we move from a company that has always had compassion in its core to now becoming high performance? How do you become a both compassionate and high performance company? Those two things might feel like, well, you got to choose one or the other because high performing companies are probably brutal. They're probably tough. They're probably sort of like, you know, sort of like you got to, you know, sort of meet, meet a bar or else you're out. That's a, that's a, 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 you know, maybe one meme of a high performing company. And then compassionate companies maybe have a meme of like, well, compassionate companies, those are great, but they, they don't, they don't produce results. They don't, they never have tough conversations because they're compassionate at their core. So I think for us, really interesting challenge we're trying to embrace is be compassionate at our core and become high performing. How do you do that in a very human way, but also like shows in the results like, wow, we're actually executing and, and doing well because we're doing well in service of our creators and our consumers. So I think that's next for us. And it's reshaping everything from how we hire to how we have feedback conversations to how we train our leaders. So that's what's next, you know, amidst a backdrop of like offices reopening and, and hybrid working, you know, sort of um, really truly unfolding, you know, in parallel. David shared some great insights into the future of the hybrid workforce and how to continue building a strong company culture virtually. Here are a few key takeaways that really stood out to me from the information David shared. The role of PeopleOps professionals during a major transition like the shift to a hybrid workforce is to hold the mirror up to the organization and facilitate the conversations that inform change. In other words, it's about uncovering the data and insights that lead towards improvement while leaving the final decisions up to leadership. Experimentation is key. 
Eventbrite didn't go to sleep one night and wake up the next day as a fully functioning hybrid workforce. David explained that plenty of experimentation, communication, and trial and error was involved in the process, and maintaining an open dialogue throughout was crucial in improving the model consistently. Never compromise on core values. A common thread throughout our discussion was Eventbrite's strong identification as a compassionate company. No matter what's going on externally, or however many major transitions the company is enduring, maintaining strong core values like compassion, kindness, and innovation is essential. Thank you for listening to New World of Work, the podcast exploring the new frontier of the modern workforce through an international lens. We hope this episode served to expand your horizons and open your mind to a new perspective. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so that we can reach more listeners. I'm your host, Reese Black. See you next time.